Chapter six of Walpole by John Morley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Characteristics Rulers who have gained historic fame by war and empire naturally impose heroic and commanding traits on mankind. Rulers who have been great in peace usually move us by the qualities of a wise and benign morality. Sir Robert Walpole's position is in this respect a peculiar one. He was a powerful ruler, who guided the country through a long and profoundly critical ordeal. Yet his name possesses no heroic associations. He was a great peace minister. Yet his career suggests neither the attractions of private virtue nor the inspiration of lofty public ideals. It is impossible to make one of the grand heroic figures of human history out of nothing more sublime than strong sagacity penetrating common sense, and tenacious public spirit. Both the nature of Walpole's task and the characteristics of his time were fatal to the heroic. Quieta non movere was a sound and saving maxim for a British minister from the Peace of Utrecht to the Seven Years' War. But it is a maxim without luster. Although, however, there is nothing in such a character as Walpole's to dazzle or to inspire he possessed, in the highest degree, and displayed on the widest scale, those qualities of intelligence, prudence, watchfulness, and unshaken constancy, which fit a man to act a great part in the trying field of civil contention. The portraits convey no striking impression of character, the glance is firm, but the ruling trait is a somewhat unattractive complacency. Songs and caricatures abound, in references to an everlasting expression between a smile and a sneer, quote, His face was bronzed over with a glare of confidence, says his enemy in the craftsman. Quote, an arch malignity leered in his eye. End quote. The malignity is certainly not there, but the confidence is. In his early days, handsome and portly, he grew afterwards to be corpulent and unwieldy, though he rode to hounds almost to the last. He was the gayest and easiest of companions. Pope was the intimate of Bolingbroke, Swift, and others of Walpole's bitterest foes, and yet he paid to the enemy of his friends the tribute of those graceful lines. Quote, Seen him I have, but in his happier hour, of social pleasure, ill exchanged for power. Seen him uncumbered with the venal tribe, smile without art, and win without a bribe. End quote. It would have done you good, his son said, to hear him laugh. As another said of him, in an admirable phrase, quote, he laughed the hearts laughed. End quote. Speaker Onslow said that his goodness of heart made him the best man to live with and to live under that he ever knew. Pulteney, who had been his friend and quarreled with him and therefore was inclined to say particularly hard things of him, declared that Walpole was of a temper so calm and equal and so hard to be provoked that he never felt the bitterest invectives against him for half an hour. Of Pelham, his pupil and successor, it was said that until he lost his temper he could never exert his reason. Walpole was the very opposite. He once lost his temper at a cabinet, but he immediately broke up the meeting, remarking that nobody was fit for business with a ruffled temper. Even Johnson, who thought that the first Whig was the devil, 
and who always took care in reporting the parliamentary debates that the Whig dogs should have the worst of it, still admired Walpole for his placability and admitted that he was a fine fellow. A contemporary story gives a singular glimpse of the easy terms on which Walpole stood with men who every day denounced him as the vilest of wretches. Pulteney, though he had seceded from the regulars of his party, supposed, childishly enough, that the virtue of Whig principles would remain in him if he continued to sit on Whig benches. One day, quote, Mr. Pulteney, sitting upon the same bench with Sir Robert Walpole in the House of Commons, said, Sir Robert, I have a favor to ask of you. Oh, my good friend Pulteney, said Sir Robert, what favor can you have to ask of me? It is, said Mr. Pulteney, that Dr. Pierce may not suffer in his preferment for being my friend. I promise you, returned Sir Robert, that he shall not. Why, then, I hope, said Mr. Pulteney, that you will give him the deanery of Wells. No, replied Sir Robert, I cannot promise you that, friend, for it is already promised. End quote. Footnote. Cox. Chapter 39. Section 3. Page 46. End footnote. Walpole gave Pulteney's friend another deanery, and Pulteney, thinking gratitude for private favors a higher virtue than regard for the public weal, wrote to the new dean to vote for Sir Robert's man if there should be a contest at Winchester. Footnote. Quoted from Pierce by Cox. Chapter 39. Section 3. Page 46. End footnote. The bonhomie of the House of Commons is very superficial, and there was nothing to prevent Pulteney, after writing to his dean, from fulminating against the enormities of Walpole in buying votes by conferring places. Like his father before him, Walpole was a lover of company. There are few more curious pictures of conviviality under difficulties than that of George I, after a morning's hunting at Richmond, drinking punch and talking dog Latin with Walpole all the afternoon. The minister was not a drunkard, as Harley, Carteret, and Daniel Pulteney all were, though he probably consumed a quantity that, in modern opinion, would constitute a hard drinker. He was too laborious and systematic a worker all his life to have been habitually addicted to gross excess. The vast augmentation of public business since his day, due to extension of dominion, to immense increase of population, to rapidity and multiplicity of communications, to the vigilance of the newspapers and to the boundless activity and exactness of a reformed House of Commons, has doubtless made a great difference in the weight of ministerial burdens. Still, there will always be industrious ministers and lazy ministers, whether the work of the department be heavy or light, and Walpole was one of the most industrious ministers that ever sat in Downing Street. Footnote. At this time, the house, which is now number 10 Downing Street, was then the only official residence in that famous purlieu. It belonged to the crown, and Bothmar, the Hanoverian minister, lived in it. When Bothmar died, George II wished to make Walpole a present of it. Walpole refused it as a personal gift, and they agreed that it should, for the future, always go with the offices of First Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer. End footnote. Some of his industry was such as few men of business would now regard as sensible. According to Cox, he seldom employed a secretary. 
every letter of his that has been found was wholly written in his own hand and it is believed that the copies in the hardwick collection were taken from originals all in his own writing he even underwent the slavery of transcribing whole letters from other people and we are assured that the family papers abounded with extracts from dispatches and memoranda upon them which prove his indefatigable exertions he always thought for himself and never fell into the too common weakness of allowing subordinates in the office to think for him he never meddled with the business of others and never allowed others to do his own like most though not quite all great workers he was both rapid and methodical he was contrasted by contemporaries with the duke of newcastle the duke was all hurry and confusion while sir robert who had ten times the amount of business was never in a hurry quote, he did everything with the same ease and tranquillity as if he was doing nothing walpole was none the less devoted in his application to serious affairs for being a keen sportsman george the second expressed his contempt for men of quality who spent their time in tormenting a poor fox that was generally a much better beast than any of those that pursued him inasmuch as the fox hurts no other animal but for his subsistence while those brutes who hurt him did it only for the pleasure of hurting but he forgave walpole for this obnoxious relaxation because all the other eleven months of the year he gave up to the business of his prince besides his sport in norfolk walpole hunted with a pack of beagles in richmond park and it is said of him as it is of lord althorpe that when the letters arrived he first opened that from his gamekeeper it needs not to be added of such a man that he was a great sleeper quote, i put off my cares he said when i put off my clothes End quote. walpole's faults of external demeanour were of a kind of which our own age has become intolerant his talk at table was such as to-day would send all the ladies flying from the room he had that very sorry vice which chesterfield calls his desire to be thought to have a polite and happy turn for gallantry and he boasted of his successes with a coarseness that would now cause instant expulsion from the mess of any garrison or any circuit in great britain his extraordinary laxity in this part of private morality reached to so incredible a pitch that he seems to have been indifferent to the doubtful fidelity of his own wife and to the legitimacy of his eldest son's eldest boy though the boy was heir to the walpole peerage ceremonious people complained of a want of dignity in walpole's manners it was the natural consequence of the want of moral dignity in his character policy may have had a share in it a hardy kind of frankness which sometimes seemed impudent says chesterfield made the world think that he let them into his secrets while the impoliteness of his manners seemed to show his sincerity though he was boisterous in his ways and though he appears never to have lost his norfolk accent it is caricature to compare him with the westerns and top halls of the day it is true that walpole was no scholar and no reader Quote, i wish i took as much delight in reading as you do he said to a friend after his retirement it would be the means of alleviating many tedious hours but to my misfortune 
I derive no pleasure from such pursuits. End quote. Yet there was nothing illiterate or uneducated about his speeches. The standard books contain passages from his great speech on the Peerage Bill. They are as far as possible from the vein of Squire Western. Onslow says that this performance had as much eloquence and genius in it as had ever up to that time been heard in Parliament. The speech on the Triennial Bill of 1734 is a masterpiece of ready invective and of argument. Chatham declared that the attack on Wyndham on the occasion of the succession, 1740, was one of the finest speeches he ever heard. Harvey's report of Walpole's address to his political friends on the withdrawal of the excise scheme shows it to have had not only animation and energy, but dignity. His political pamphlets are clear and straightforward statements in sound English. His reported conversations and some of his private correspondence show Walpole to have had both neatness and facility in the trick of Latin quotation. It is true that in one of the best-known parliamentary anecdotes of the time he once lost a guinea by a blunder in a very familiar verse. He quoted Horace's line as, Nil consciri sibi, nulli palescere colpi. Pulteney replied that his Latin was as bad as his logic, and that the right words were, nulla palescere colpa. Walpole offered to bet him a guinea. The clerk at the table gave it against the minister, who threw the guinea down. Pulteney, catching it, held it up to the house, calling out, "'Tis the first money I've had from the treasury these many years, and it will be the last." The error was no worse than Burke's false quantity when he cried, "'Magnum vectigal es parcimonia,' yet Burke was not illiterate. Like other charges against Walpole, his offence to shutting the door of patronage in the face of genius has been made far too much of. We have already seen that he procured £200 a year to the author of The Night Thoughts. He offered a pension to Pope, who declined on the ground that he never thought himself so warm to any party's cause as to deserve their money. He subscribed for ten copies of Fielding's works in 1743, though Fielding had abused him. He sent the unfortunate savage banknotes. He insisted that Prior, Steele, and Addison had all shown that the most accomplished men of letters make the worst men in affairs. But to please a friend, he made Congreve a commissioner of customs, predicting, however, that they would find he had no head for business. It is true that he disappointed the expectations of Swift, and thereby incurred the formidable enmity of that powerful genius. But I see no reason why we should condemn Walpole for leaving the unhappy man at, quote, wretched Dublin in miserable Ireland, end quote. Footnote, Swift, volume 17, page 17, end footnote. It is true that he looked upon writing as a mechanical business and, quote, took up with any pen that he could find in public offices, end quote. But Walpole might well think that when the hack pamphleteer had pocketed his guineas, all the honor had been paid that such literature as his deserved. He cared little more for musicians than he cared for literature, calling them a pack of fiddlers. For pictures, he had both a genuine enthusiasm and a good judgment. Many of the noble houses in Rome, Florence, and Venice were selling their pictures, and Walpole bought some of the best of them. Even in the most anxious days of 1742, 
he took the keenest interest in a Domenichino, which was too long on its way to England, and after his fall he alarmed his son by proposing a jaunt to Bologna, Florence, and Rome to see the galleries. His collection, or most of it afterwards, found its way to St. Petersburg when Walpole's grandson was driven to raise money on the treasures of his ancestors, like the Zambicari and the Pallavicini before him. Lord Campbell whimsically complains that Walpole is responsible by his utter neglect of literature and literary men for giving to official life in England that, quote, aristocratic feeling and vulgar business-like tone which it has ever since retained, end quote. As if there were any relation between the cause and its alleged effect. Nobody did less for men of letters than the younger Pitt, yet no minister ever held in transacting public business a loftier or less vulgar tone. As for Walpole's infecting public life with aristocratic feeling, it is worth remembering that he belonged to no great family and formed no powerful connections. When men talk of the Venetian oligarchy of patrician Whigs, they forget that the patrician oligarchy was controlled in its palmiest days by a plain country gentleman. This was one of the taunts most constantly flung at him by his enemies, as it was a source of just pride to his own family. Walpole's feeling, in truth, was much less aristocratic than it was bourgeois. This was evident long before he reached the summit of his power. It would have been a graceful decoration to his solid gifts if Walpole had played the patron of art and letters, but after all the work of government is the dispatch of business, and it is childish to quarrel with a statesman for giving to it a business-like tone. We may wish that Walpole had lighted up his speeches and his policy with the language of an elevated imagination. Still, as his son truly said, his eloquence was made for use. He had a melodious voice and little gesture, and is described by contemporaries as an artful, rather than an eloquent speaker, fluent, ready, and vigorous in reply, with great skill in catching the humor of the house, and singular clearness in unfolding intricate matters, making people think that they understood when they did not. He was right in leaving the declamations of Pitt unanswered, and in thinking that he had done enough when he had met the homely contentions of Sir John Bernard. A solid reply to a solid argument was worth a whole library of flashy classical references, delusive historical parallels, and all the rest of the elegant claptrap which Bolingbroke absurdly called the philosophy of history. The first qualification in one who aspires to a ruling place in the councils of a nation is that he should have sound and penetrating judgment. The second is ample and accurate knowledge of the business in hand. And the third is tenacity of will and strength of character. All this is the very root of the matter, and the root of the matter Walpole had. The arts of management were a useful, perhaps an indispensable adjunct. Nevertheless, it was not the arts of management alone, or even principally. It was his practical grasp of the facts of public business, 
that enabled Walpole to acquire at the same time favour in the closet of the king, unbounded influence in the House of Commons, and great, though unhappily not always unbounded authority, over public opinion in the country. Burke rightly contends that Walpole's faults were superficial, quote, a careless coarse and over-familiar style of discourse, without sufficient regard to persons or occasions, and an almost total want of political decorum, were the errors by which he was most hurt in public opinion, end quote. It is certainly a mistake to dismiss Walpole as a pure cynic, he laughed at the patriotic professions of his opponents but then they deserve no better he refused to expect too much from men but this is a virtue and not a vice in one who has to govern men as they are and not as the moralist nobly strives to make them government like all the practical arts means the overcoming of difficulties it is the greatest of the practical arts because its ends are the highest and the difficulties the most subtle, complex, and incalculable. The world will never place Walpole in the highest rank among those who have governed men, for in the world's finest estimate, character goes farther than act, imagination than utility, and its leaders strike us as much by what they were as by what they did. But Walpole was high enough for his task, he possessed the qualities and mastered the maxims that it required. There are few difficulties, Walpole said in his letters to Pelham, after his own career was closed, quote, that cannot be surmounted if properly and resolutely engaged in. It is a pity that you have not time, for time and address have often carried things that met at the first onset with great reluctance, end quote. He was told that somebody had deserted to the Tories after promising that he would always stand by the Whigs. Quote, I advise my young men, Walpole said, never to use always. End quote. He had the true political temperament, which makes it possible for a man to be at once intrepid and circumspect. No statesman ever adhered more consistently to all the great articles of his creed, but as Harvey says, quote, he had been too long conversant in business not to know that in the fluctuation of human affairs and variety of accidents to which the best concerted schemes are liable, they must often be disappointed who build on the certainty of the most probable events, and therefore seldom turned his thoughts to the provisional warding off future evils, which might or might not happen, or the scheming of remote advantages subject to so many intervening crosses, but always applied himself to the present occurrence studying and generally hitting upon the properest method to improve what was favourable and the best expedient to extricate himself out of what was difficult satisfied that he was striving for some broad and honest end he was not always rigorous as to means quote, he durst do right says his son but he durst do wrong too end quote. grave and many are the dangers of the courage to do wrong yet on the whole, Walpole must be pronounced to have got discredit for more wrong than he ever did. The accusation that Walpole was intensely wedded to power is so little grave as hardly to be an accusation at all. Any man with conscious faculty of strength and a love of the active business of government 
is naturally wedded to power. It may be said that Fox and Burke were strong men, and yet were free from the covetousness of office that consumed men like Walpole and like Pitt. But neither Fox nor Burke ever showed that he possessed remarkable aptitude for carrying on public business. They were for much too short a time in office to acquire the habit and the passion for it, and they were never led into temptation by having any real chance of seizing power after Mr. Pitt once rose above the horizon. A man may be a resplendent rhetorician like Burke, or he may have commanding views on politics like Fox, without being eager for personal power, but as a rule a practical statesman, conscious of ability for a ruling part in large public transactions, will be as fond of power as Walpole was, or as Pitt. Walpole, moreover, like most great ministers, identified his own personality with high objects of national policy. Private triumphs were never separated in his mind from the success of public causes, and he insisted on having power because he was convinced that he knew how to use it well. But bad or feeble men, it may be argued, often think the same. The Duke of Newcastle was, in his own particular way, as fond of power as Walpole. This only shows that the love of power is in itself neither a virtue nor a vice. Quote, My lord, said Chatham to the Duke of Devonshire, I am sure that I can save this country and that nobody else can. End quote. There are times when it is a statesman's duty to insist upon power. The only question with which history needs to concern itself is not whether Walpole was intensely wedded to power, but whether his possession and use of it were important for the public good. Then, is it true to say that Walpole was unscrupulous in his means for grasping power and keeping it? That he gave some advice without a blush, which any leading English statesman today would readily rather extinguish his public life than give, is, unfortunately, too certain. Writers on morals tell us that conduct has an aesthetic and an ethical aspect. It is beautiful or ugly, as well as right or wrong. Walpole's counsels to Queen Caroline, and after her death to the king's own daughters, were indecorous and disgusting apart from their immorality. It is certain, too, that, as some say, he had not the delicate sense of honor which marks the ideal public man. But it cannot be disguised that many men have shown a want of a fine sense of honor, whom still we should hesitate to brand generally as either unscrupulous or unprincipled. Chatham acted in a way that was not at all to his honor when he first offered to screen Walpole, and then, on his offer being repulsed, redoubled the violence of his attack. George III did many shabby, cunning, and unscrupulous things. Yet tradition is gradually coming to pass him off as a very honest gentleman. Did Mr. Pitt exhibit perfect delicacy of honor when, on coming back to power in 1804, he allowed the stubborn king to ostracize Mr. Fox? Yet Pitt is usually treated as the pink of moral elevation, and he did undoubtedly take a loftier view of the connection between public authority and private honor than had been the fashion before his time. The equity of history requires that we shall judge men of action by the standards of men of action, 
nobody would single out high-mindedness as one of Walpole's conspicuous attributes. It is not a very common attribute among active politicians in any age. On the other hand, Walpole was neither low-minded nor small-minded. His son had a right to boast that he never gave up the interests of his party to serve his own, though he often gave up his own opinions to please friends who were serving themselves. With the firmest confidence in himself, he was neither pragmatical nor arrogant. He was wholly free from spite and from envy. He bore no malice, though when he had once found a man out in playing tricks, he took care never to forget it. And he was right, for the issues at stake were too important to allow him to forget. It is said that he could not brook a colleague of superior ability, and that he took care to surround himself with mediocrities like the Duke of Newcastle. We may test the accusation by the conduct of Chatham. Nobody has ever taunted him with this ignoble jealousy, yet he acted precisely as Walpole acted. After fighting against Newcastle as long as he could, he gave way to him just as Walpole had found it expedient to do. Quote, I borrowed the Duke of Newcastle's majority, said Pitt in 1757, to carry on the public business. End quote. It was his majority, not his mediocrity, that Walpole valued. So with the proscriptions. Pitt peremptorily excluded Henry Fox from his famous administration, though Fox was the ablest debater in Parliament, and he declined to advance Charles Townsend, who was more near to being his intellectual equal than anybody else then in the House of Commons. Neither in Pitt's case nor Walpole's case is it necessary to ascribe their action to anything worse than the highly judicious conviction that whether in carrying out a great policy of peace, like Walpole's, or an arduous policy of war, like Pitt's, the very worst impediment that a minister can have is a colleague in his cabinet who spoils superior ability by perversities of restlessness and egotism. There is not one of the able men ostracized, as it is called by Walpole, whose political steadiness and personal fidelity he could safely trust, and not one of them, let us not forget to add, who, for fifteen years after his fall, ever showed himself any better able to work with other colleagues and leaders than he had been able to work with Walpole. Walpole took the pleasures, the honors, the prizes of the world as they came in his way, and he thoroughly relished and enjoyed them. But what his heart was seriously set upon all the time, seriously, persistently, strenuously, devotedly, was the promotion of good government and the frustration and confusion of its enemies. When men got in his way, he thrust them aside, without misgiving or remorse, just as a commander in the field would remove a meddling, wrong-headed, or incompetent general of division without remorse. But to be remorseless is a very different thing from being unscrupulous. I am not aware of a single proof that Walpole ever began those intrigues against his enemies, which they were always so ready to practice against him. It was Stanhope and Sunderland, not Walpole, who began and carried out the intrigues that ended in the schism of 1717. It was Carteret 
who cabaled with the Tory leaders against his own colleagues after Sunderland's death. It was Bolingbroke and the Duchess of Kendal who strove by underhand arts to procure access for the former to George I, and when Walpole found out what was going on, he at once boldly urged the king to grant Bolingbroke his audience and to hear all that he had to say. It was Chesterfield who tried to set up a clique against Walpole within his own ministry. Much is made of the case of Townsend, but it is rather a paradox to prove Walpole's imperious refusal to share power with able colleagues by referring us to Townsend, with whom he worked an unbroken cordiality for the best part of thirty years, and with whom he did loyally share power, himself in a relation rather subordinate than otherwise for ten of these years. It was Townsend, moreover, who at the last took advantage of his journey with the king to Hanover, secretly to ingratiate himself in the royal favor to the disadvantage of Walpole at home. Plenty of intriguing was carried on, but not by Walpole. A candid and particular examination of the political history of that time, so far as the circumstances are known to us, leads to the conclusion that of all his contemporaries, from men of genius like Bolingbroke and Carteret, from able and brilliant men like Townsend and Chesterfield, Wyndham and Pulteney, down to a mediocre personage like the Duke of Newcastle, Walpole was the least unscrupulous of the men of that time, the most straightforward, bold, and open, and the least addicted to scheming and cabal. He relied more than they did, not less, upon what, after all, in every age is the only solid foundation of political power, though it may not always lead to the longest terms of office, upon his own superior capacity, more constant principle, firmer will, and clearer vision. That Walpole practiced what would now be regarded as parliamentary corruption is undeniable. But political conduct must be judged in the light of political history. Not very many years before Walpole, a man was expected to pay some thousands of pounds for being made Secretary of State, just as down to our own time he paid for being made Colonel of a regiment. Many years after Walpole, Lord North used to job the loans, and it was not until the younger Pitt set a loftier example that any minister saw the least harm in keeping a portion of a public loan in his own hands for distribution among his private friends. For a minister to buy the vote of a member of Parliament was not then thought much more shameful than almost down to our own time it has been thought shameful for a member of Parliament to buy the vote of an elector. Is it a greater sin against political purity to give a member five hundred pounds for his vote than to advance three thousand for the purchase of his seat? Yet even the austere Pitt laughed, as Walpole might have laughed, at what he called the squeamish and maiden coyness of the House of Commons, in hesitating to admit the right of the owners of rotten boroughs to be compensated for the disfranchisement of their property. It is absurd to suppose that Walpole first tempted mankind into rapacity and selfishness. Even his enemies admitted that corruption had been gaining ground ever since the time of Charles II. Nobody denies that in all its forms the venality alike 
of members and of constituencies was vastly worse thirty years after walpole's disappearance than anybody ever asserted it to be in his time to say with some modern writers that walpole organized corruption as a system that he made corruption the normal process of parliamentary government that he governed by means of an assembly which was saturated with corruption is to use language enormously in excess of any producible evidence and of all legitimate inference it is to attach a weight to the furious and envenomed diatribes of the craftsmen to which the very violence of their language shows them not to be entitled with unanswerable force it has been asked by sir robert peel and other men of experience in public affairs how it came about that if walpole did really corrupt his age and if the foundation of his strength was the systematic misapplication of the public money to the purpose of bribery yet a select committee of twenty-one members nineteen of them his bitter enemies appointed after his fall to lay a siege to his past life equal in duration to the siege of troy produced no specific facts to support the allegations of bribery which had been used every week and every day for so many years to inflame public resentment against him two of the great heads of accusation shrunk up to miserable dimensions and the third remained a matter of vague and unsupported inference would so lame and impotent a conclusion have been possible if substantial grounds for the accusation had been in existence the charge of under influence at elections ended in the production of a mere mouse from the labouring mountain walpole appears to have promised the mayor a place in the revenue service at weymouth in order to secure a returning officer of the right colour to have removed some customs officers who declined to vote for the right candidate and to have disbursed some petty sums for legal proceedings in boroughs we find nothing like the lavish purchase of boroughs that was practised wholesale by george the third and which explains the vast debts that loaded the civil list of a king who was personally the most frugal of men lord north thought nothing of paying lord edgecombe fifteen thousand pounds for his borough or buying three seats from lord falmouth for seven thousand five hundred pounds though the bargain nearly went off because he would not make the pounds guineas footnote see the abergavenny papers printed by the historical manuscript commission i believe the unprinted portions of the correspondence between george the third and robinson contain still more astonishing examples of the scale on which the royal borough-monger went to work End footnote. walpole never approached such a scale as this nor again did the article of conceding fraudulent contracts produce any more appalling disclosure than that in the single case of a not very large contract for payment of troops in jamaica the terms had been suspiciously handsome finally the grand accusation of peculation and profusion in the expenditure of the secret service money can be placed no higher than a doubtful inference from a doubtful figure the committee founded their case on the amount of the secret service money that amount they pronounced to be so excessive that it could only be explained by a corrupt and improper destination 
they took a period for the purposes of comparison at their own will and pleasure the secret service money during the ten years from seventeen o seven to seventeen seventeen only amounted to three hundred and thirty eight thousand pounds the same head under walpole's administration from seventeen thirty one to seventeen forty one was no less than one million four hundred and forty thousand pounds therefore they argued and modern writers are content with their argument a large proportion of the immense expenditure of secret service money in walpole's government was devoted to the direct purchase of members of parliament the premise we repeat can only be accepted with qualifications next even if the premise be taken as offering a precisely just and accurate comparison the desired conclusion does not necessarily or even reasonably follow from it footnote the reader will find the matter elaborately examined by cox in his sixty-first chapter End footnote. the ten years from seventeen o seven to seventeen seventeen were arbitrarily chosen if the first ten years of anne or of george i had been taken the figure would have been much higher and therefore more favourable to walpole the items of the account moreover are taken in one way in order to attenuate the figure of the first period and in another way when the object is to expand the figure of the second period certain payments were charged to the secret service fund in one case which in the other case had either not been made or else had gone to another account the comparative statement is therefore fallacious fairly measured this branch of expenditure so far as it covered a really secret employment of money which it would be against the interest of the public service to disclose amounted during ten years of walpole's administration to less than an annual average of seventy nine thousand pounds and that according to cox is much less than the sum expended for similar purposes during a similar term of office before the revolution let us however suppose that the amount was even higher than this why are we to assume as a matter of course that most of it was spent in buying members of boroughs rather than in the avowed objects of buying secret intelligence both at home and from abroad and in buying foreign ministers is it certain that walpole was always singularly well informed as to the designs of foreign courts there were also people at home on whom it was necessary to keep a still more vigilant eye the designs of jacobite plotters were obscurer and more intricate than the diplomatic manoeuvres of madrid vienna or versailles walpole was wisely willing to pay handsomely for good information about them it was said of him that while he was profuse to his friends his liberality was literally unbounded to his tools and his spies even in our day no british minister has ventured to dispense with services of this odious kind and every minister still very properly refuses to account to parliament or to any auditor for a shilling of it that some of this money went in bribes to members of parliament it would be childish to deny we shall presently come upon an instance where nine hundred pounds was paid to two members of the house of commons for their support parenthesis below page one ninety five and parenthesis let us take that as incontrovertible but it goes a very little way toward the broad accusation 
that we are examining. The very fact that the king grumbled loudly at a transaction which cost no more than nine hundred pounds shows that such transactions did not usually mount up to a very large proportion of one hundred and forty-four thousand pounds a year. The one detailed case, therefore, that can be adduced to support the assumption that most of the Secret Service money at Walpole's disposal went in parliamentary corruption itself shows that the assumption is altogether exaggerated and extravagant. The figures prove too much. We may admit that the gentlemen who had taken Walpole's money would be likely to hold their peace about it, and we know that those who paid the money were authorized by the king to refuse to give evidence. Yet, when all allowance has been made for these facts, considering how many scores of men must have been concerned, what enormous sums on the hypothesis must have passed, and how passionately ready the great majority of the committee were to procure evidence good or bad at any price, it is surely incredible that if corruption had been practiced on anything approaching to the vast and systematic scale which is so loosely imputed, not one single case should have been forthcoming. The substance of the charge of corruption is to be sought not in occasional payment of blackmail to a member or a patron, but in the fact that he reserved the crown patronage down to the last morsel, exclusively for members of his own party. He acted on the principle that is accepted in the United States, that is not disavowed in France, and that, although disavowed in Great Britain, has not yet wholly disappeared there. A member of Parliament who desired anything from a lucrative office for himself down to a place as tide-waiter for the son of a tenant, knew that the only chance would be to support the administration. The number of offices held by men in Parliament was very great. When Burke introduced his famous scheme of economical reform, 1780, he boasted that it would destroy influence equal to the offices of at least 50 members of Parliament. In Walpole's time, the number of placeholders at the pleasure of the court must have been considerably in excess of 50, for the place bill of 1743 had excluded a certain number of subordinate personages from seats in Parliament. Walpole insisted that all these gentlemen should be sound Whigs. To that extent, acting especially on the owners of boroughs, he systematically affected the disinterestedness and independence of the House of Commons. Walpole has no doubt suffered much in the opinion of posterity, as the supposed author of the shallow and cynical apophthegm that, quote, every man has his price, end quote. People who know nothing else about Walpole believe and repeat this about him. Yet the story is a pure piece of misrepresentation. He never delivered himself of that famous slander on mankind. One day, mocking the flowery and declamatory professions of some of the patriots in opposition, he insisted on finding self-interest or family interest at the bottom of their fine things, quote, All these men, he said, have their price, end quote. As to the revolters, he told the king, I know the reasons and I know the price of every one of them. Nor was he wrong, as time showed. It was not a general, but a particular proposition, and as a particular proposition it was true. 
when an honest man came in his way walpole knew him well enough quote, i will not say he observed who is corrupt but i will say who is not and that is shippen end quote. and yet honest shippen was one of the stoutest of his opponents the absence of any tangible evidence of novel extraordinary lavish and widespread parliamentary corruption on walpole's part only coincides with the best positive testimony that we can get pitt who was one of the most vehement promoters of the secret committee five years later publicly acquitted walpole of the worst of the charges brought against him in terms ample enough to satisfy the late minister's own sons footnote horace walpole to man twenty third of february seventeen forty seven volume two page seventy four end footnote burke again says that it was his fortune to converse with many of the principal actors against walpole and to examine with care original documents concerning important transactions of those times parenthesis regicide peace one and parenthesis his writings as everybody knows contain more than one passage showing that he had informed himself about walpole's character and acts and in truth much of the great writer's theoretic wisdom is but the splendid generalization of the great minister's particular policy and practice what burke has to say on the point that we are now discussing is this quote, walpole was an honorable man and a sound whig he was not as the jacobites and discontented whigs of his own time have represented him and as ill-informed people still represent him a prodigal and corrupt minister they charged him in their libels and seditious conversations as having first reduced corruption to a system such was their cant but he was far from governing by corruption he governed by party attachments the charge of systematic corruption is less applicable to him perhaps than to any minister who ever served the crown for so great a length of time he gained over very few from the opposition end quote parenthesis appeal from new to old whigs and parenthesis evidence of this kind coming from a man of affairs in the generation immediately following in contact with some actors in those events and with many who must have known about them at first hand must outweigh any amount of sweeping presumptions by historians writing a century and a half after walpole's fall the part and proportion of corruption in walpole's management of members is to be gathered from what he did to secure the rejection of the bill for lowering the interest on the funds he got time enough says harvey quote, to go about to talk to people to solicit to intimidate to argue to persuade and perhaps to bribe end quote. this may be taken as a fair example of his usual practice bribery was an expedient in the last resort and the appeal to cupidity came after appeals to friendship to fear to reason and to all those mixed motives creditable permissible and equivocal which guide votes in reformed and unreformed parliaments alike the pecuniary affairs of public men are no concern of the outside world unless they are tainted with improbity so many charges were made against walpole under this head that it is necessary to glance at them i shall begin with the least serious very early in his career of minister walpole was tainted with abusing his patronage by granting places and reversions of places to his relatives when his son horace was little more than a child 
he was made clerk of the estreats and controller of the pipe with a salary of three hundred pounds a year at the age of eighteen or nineteen he became inspector of customs on resigning that post a year later he was made usher of the exchequer then worth nine hundred pounds a year and horace walpole was able to boast that from the age of twenty he was no charge to his family the duty of the usher was to furnish paper pens ink wax sand tape pen-knives scissors and parchment to the exchequer and the profits rose from nine hundred pounds a year to an average of double that amount the post of collector of the customs worth nearly two thousand pounds a year was granted to walpole himself and for the lives of robert and edward his sons the bulk of the proceeds of this patent he devised to his son horace in seventeen twenty one the minister made his eldest son clerk of the pells with three thousand a year and in seventeen thirty nine he gave him the gigantic prize of auditor of the exchequer with a salary of seven thousand pounds then when the eldest son resigned the pells on receiving the auditorship the pells and the three thousand a year went to edward walpole the next brother footnote see in horace walpole's letters the memorandum respecting his income page seventy nine and section one three fourteen also cox chapter sixty one section four page three twenty and footnote all these great patent offices were sinecures they were always executed by deputy the principal had not a week's work to do from the first annual quarter day to the last we can imagine how these rank abominations would stink in the nostrils of the house of commons and the treasury to-day yet it is worth remembering that burke when he proposed his famous plan of economical reform in seventeen eighty though he admitted that the magnitude of the profits in the great patent offices called for reformation still looked with complacency on an exchequer list filled with the descendants of the walpoles the pelhams and the townsends and maintained the expediency of these indirect provisions for the families of great public servants indirect rewards have long disappeared and nothing is more certain than that the whole system of political pension even as a direct and personal reward is drawing to an end whether either the purity or the efficiency of political service will gain by the change is not so certain walpole at least can hardly be censured for doing what in the very height of his zeal for reform burke seriously and deliberately defended abuse of patronage however was the least formidable of the charges that descended year after year in a storm on walpole's head he was roundly and constantly charged with sustaining a lavish private expenditure by peculation from public funds footnote thus in the popular doggerel of the day but a few years ago as we very well know he scarce had a guinea his fob in but by bribing of friends to serve his dark ends now worth a full million is robin as oft hath he said that our debts should be paid and the nation be eased of her throbbing yet on tick we still run for the true sinking fun is the bottomless pocket of robin End footnote. the palace which he built for himself in norfolk was matter for endless scandal he planted gardens people said in places to which the very earth had to be transported in wagons he set fountains flowing and cascades tumbling 
where water was to be conveyed by long aqueducts and costly machines. He was a modern Sardanopolis, imitating the extravagance of Oriental monarchs at the expense of a free people, whom he was at once impoverishing and betraying. They described him as going down to his country seat, loaded with the spoils of an unfortunate nation. He had purchased most of the county of Norfolk, and held at least one half of the stock of the Bank of England. It was plainly hinted that in view of a possible impeachment at some future day, he had made himself safe by investing £150,000 in jewels and plate as an easily portable form of wealth. He had also secretly dispatched £400,000 in a single year to bankers at Amsterdam, Vienna, and Genoa, to be ready for him in case of untoward accidents. These lively fabrications undoubtedly represented the common rumor and opinion of the time, and were excellently fitted to nourish the popular dislike with which Walpole came to be regarded. They had their origin in the same suspicious temper toward an unpopular minister, which two generations before had made the people of London give to Clarendon's new palace in Piccadilly the name of Dunkirk House, and which a generation later prompted the charge that Lord Bute's great house and park at Luton had come out of the bribes of France. They had hardly more solid foundation than the charge of saturating Parliament with corruption. The truth seems to be that Walpole, like both the Pitts, was inexact and careless about money. Profusion was a natural element in a large, loose, jovial character like his, too incessantly preoccupied with business, power, government, and high affairs of state, to have much regard for a wise private economy. He was supposed to contribute handsomely toward the expense of fighting elections. Footnote. Cox, chapter 45. Quotes from Ito, the utterly incredible story that Walpole spent £60,000 out of his private fortune at the general election of 1734. Ito himself, I find, only says that he heard it after Walpole's death from somebody who had good information. The minister may have been profuse, but an expenditure of this magnitude would have been not profusion, but insanity. Nor is it at all likely that he was at that time in a position to lay his hands upon so large an amount on his private credit. End footnote. He expended in building, adding, and improving at Houghton the sum of £200,000. He built a lodge in Richmond Park at a cost of £14,000. His famous hunting congresses are said to have come to £3,000 a year, rather a moderate sum, according to the standard of today, for keeping open house for a whole county for several weeks in a vast establishment like Houghton. His collection of pictures was set down by Horace Walpole as having cost him £40,000 more, but this I suspect to be a very doubtful figure, for according to a contemporary letter in Nichols' Literary Anecdotes, so many of the pictures were presents that the whole cost could hardly have reached £30,000, and it is worth noting that the famous Guido, the gem of the collection, while it cost him some £600, was valued in the catalogue when it came to be sold to the Tsarina at 3500 For all this outlay, his foes contended that the income of his estate and the known salary of his offices were inadequate. They assumed, therefore, that the requisite funds were acquired by the sale of honors, places, and pensions, and by the plunder of the Secret Service money. 
This charitable hypothesis is not really required by the facts, for we have a very tolerable explanation without it. In the first place, rents all over England had gone up by more than one-third, and in some counties they had much more than doubled themselves, since Walpole had come into his property. As I have stated, when his father died in 1700, the rental of the Norfolk estates was upwards of £2,000. Within 40 years, it is computed that it must have risen to £5,000. This is Cox's estimate, but in Mr. Ewald's Life of Walpole, published in 1878, it is stated, on the authority of a lately deceased member of the Walpole family, that the rental was understated by Cox. Ewald, page 212. Horace Walpole puts it at a nominal £8,000 a year. End footnote. Secondly, his wife brought him a fortune, which cleared the property of its embarrassments, and presumably left a margin. Thirdly, his firm and wise conviction of the folly of the South Sea scheme did not prevent him from turning his wisdom to account by dealing in South Sea stock. Quote, I have just sold out, he said, at one moment, at a thousand percent, and I am fully satisfied. End quote. Footnote. There is a not very intelligible passage in Lady Cowper's diary, page 144, about Walpole's speculations. End footnote. Even a moderate transaction closed at a profit of a thousand percent would produce a substantial contribution toward the building of Houghton, or the purchase of thirty thousand pounds worth of pictures. Walpole's success, it should be stated, was not due to any favor from the South Sea promoters, such as ruined Aislaby, Craig's, and Sunderland, they hated him for his unvarying denunciation of their project, and whatever money he made in this way was due to his own penetration and the good information which he got from his own agents. Fourth, when Walpole died in 1745, he left a heavy mortgage on Houghton and a further debt of £50,000. Fifth, he enjoyed the emoluments of his offices for five and twenty years, this item deserves some examination. The amount of ministerial salaries in the 18th century is only to be ascertained by search in the obscure region of the issue books of the Exchequer, reports of select committees on finance and committees of inquiry, and various parliamentary returns of the civil and military establishments. Footnote. This task has been recently performed by Mr. Edward Hamilton of the Treasury, a singularly competent hand, and I count myself fortunate in being able to give to my readers the benefit of some of the fruits of his diligent and exact inquiries. End footnote. One remark may be made to begin with. During the reign of Queen Anne, and presumably down to a much later date, the modern punctuality of public payments was unknown. A Secretary of State makes light of having to write to a minister abroad apologizing for Her Majesty's backwardness in paying her servants. A minister at home, he says, can find some resources and make some shift or other to go on, but that those who serve abroad should be in arrears is indeed a great shame. Footnote. Bolingbroke's Letters, March 4, 1712-1713. End footnote. Even the most disinterested of public servants today may be startled to find a Secretary of State declaring that he had actually heard nothing of his regular salary for two years. Footnote. Bolingbroke's Letters, August 7, 1713. We may safely assume that a Chancellor of the Exchequer, at least, was able to protect himself against these inconvenient arrears in his own case. 
Let us now see how much Walpole drew from the king's purse. From Godolphin's day down to the second administration of the Duke of Portland in 1807, there were invariably five lords of the treasury when the treasury was in commission. The allowance was £8,000 a year, which was divided into equal sums of £1,600 for each lord, reduced by various deductions to a net salary of £1,220 apiece. But the first lord, in view of his great responsibilities, received additional pay out of the secret service money, and this addition brought his net emoluments up to £5,000 a year. The payment of the first lord continued to be made from the secret service money down to 1782, when the king, by privy seal, made better provision for him by an order that the whole of the salary allowed to the first lord should henceforth be received at the exchequer. This transfer of salary from secret service to the civil list in 1782 was followed, as everybody knows, at the great resettlement of 1831 by its removal to the annual votes submitted to Parliament. We may take it as reasonably certain that Walpole received as First Lord the same sum from the Secret Service money as is today voted to the same minister by the House of Commons. He also received a share of New Year's gifts, but the amount was trifling. There is no positive evidence that either the First Lord or the other commissioners of the Treasury received anything out of the fee fund, though it may possibly have been a practice in those slovenly times for a first lord to enrich himself out of perquisites. This, however, was not all. During the hundred years preceding Lord Liverpool's administration, in 1812, the first lord of the treasury, more often than not, was also chancellor of the exchequer. Originally, the salary of this office, combined as it was with that of under-treasurer, was no more than the modest sum of two hundred pounds. A further addition of sixteen hundred pounds was made in seventeen thirteen, quote, in lieu of perquisites. End quote. After being discontinued for three years, this payment was revived in seventeen sixteen in favor of Sir Robert Walpole, and it afterwards formed a regular annual charge, bringing the emoluments of the Chancellor of the Exchequer as such up to eighteen hundred pounds a year. He also received certain fees of an average value of £700 a year. The total annual salary of the Chancellor of the Exchequer was therefore in Walpole's time about £2,400, and when, as in Walpole's case, this office was held in conjunction with the post of First Lord, the total income was about £7,400 a year. Walpole, it may be observed, did not enjoy the salary which came to Lord North, Mr. Pitt, and Lord Liverpool, as wardens of the Cinque Ports, and which, having previously to 1778 been from £1,100 to £1,500 a year, stood between that date and 1827, when it was abolished at a substantial net figure not much below £3,000. While then two of his successors at the head of the government, before the end of the century, drew £10,000 a year, Walpole's official income was almost exactly the same as that which was attached to the two offices of First Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer when they were held together by the same minister in 1873 and again from 1880 to 1882. Footnote. The two offices were not combined between 1817 and 1831, except for a few months when Mr. Canning was both First Lord and Chancellor of the Exchequer. Mr. Percival, 
is stated not to have drawn the latter salary in 1810-1811, when he held both offices, end footnote. To this sum, we must add some £2,000 a year for the patent place in the customs, making a gross total of over £9,000 a year of public money. Let it be remarked, in conclusion, that the king kept a very tight hand upon the expenditure on secret service, and that the supposition that the minister was free to dip his hand into that fund at his own discretion and pleasure is a mere misapprehension. There is nothing unreasonable in supposing that Walpole's official income far exceeded any outlay in which it involved him. For those who exercise themselves in such matters, it is one of the great unsolved mysteries in human annals how it came to pass that Mr. Pitt, who was unmarried, kept no great establishment, gave no sumptuous or costly entertainments, and who drew not much less than two hundred thousand pounds of public money, should yet have died fifty-two thousand pounds in debt. Whatever Pitt's secret may have been, Walpole's circumstances were tolerably clear. His sons were provided for at the public cost. He had a fortune with his wife. He made something of a fortune by speculation. His hospitality was ample, but there was no outrageous or unmeasured profusion. He had for twenty years an income from his lands and his offices of thirteen or fourteen thousand a year, and besides debt secured on mortgage, he owed fifty thousand pounds when he died. The account shows that like so many other great public benefactors, Walpole was no thrifty steward of his private fortunes, but it shows also that his expenditure can be perfectly explained out of known and avowed resources. That the imputation of personal corruption and private plunder, never openly made, be it observed, by any responsible person, is wholly unnecessary, gratuitous, and unsupported, and that the time has come when the reckless calumnies of unscrupulous opponents, striking with masks on, should be at last dropped finally out from the history of a good servant of his country. End of chapter 6 Recording by Pamela Nagami